Welcome to the TJF Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in policing for a few years. This podcast is all about what it was like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. How did it change? And more importantly, how did it come to be in a bit of a mess? I'll describe every job that I did over those years. Reading from my book, I'll also give you my thoughts about contemporary policey stuff. I'll interview anyone brave enough to come on and ask them what they think. My wife Kay is going to help me from time to time. There may be a little bit of swearing, so probably better to keep the kids out of the room or use headphones. Everything I say and write comes out of a place of love for policing and police officers. But I know that some people probably won't agree with what I say, and that's completely okay. All I ask is that you read or listen with an open mind. And if you go away feeling that you know more about what policing in Britain is really all about, and perhaps also have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, Ian here. Thanks for coming back to the TJF podcast. Really pleased that uh, you've decided to tune in and listen to another one. Uh, flushed with success from uh, the introduction. I've had lots of really lovely messages, emails, um, reviews as well, which is great, uh, given that it's less than a week since the first uh, introductory episode. Really pleased about that. Um, just on that one, if you like this, can you be uh, an absolute star and go on the Apple Podcast app and rate and review it? It's, uh, there's a number of reasons for that. Firstly, uh, the techie bit, the algorithms, will push it further up the ranking charts uh, by you know the more positive reviews you have, obviously. But I think the main reason, as far as I'm concerned, is that if you're listening to this and you think what I'm saying is important and interesting, uh, the whole point that I'm doing this is to try and help people understand what it's really like to be in the police. And some of these messages need to be given to the the people who seemingly routinely give the police a really hard time, uh, undeservedly in my view, and undeservedly in the view of many serving police officers and, and past and past and present. Very often they get their information from the wrong places. They jump to conclusions uh, and they make law and policy based on a very incomplete and flawed understanding of reality. So if we want to change things in policing, and I suggest we probably do, then the only way that that's going to happen is if we get this message out loud and clear. So where are we going uh, this week? I'm looking to drop a podcast in uh, once a week. I think that's probably about the right uh, frequency. Uh, I'll do a little bit of a review of what's been going on in the news uh, adding my thoughts and observations to try and help those who don't really understand how the police works um, and, and sort of help you understand all of that a little bit better. I'm also going to try and uh, wheel on relevant guests that will say something uh, pertinent and hopefully interesting. And I've got some cracking people lined up who want to speak, some of whom I have worked with uh, directly. Uh, my old boss, actually, as 
asked if he can come and speak at some point and I'd love to have him on. His name's Clive Burgess and uh, he was my superintendent and my chief superintendent at various times uh, and he's also a friend. So really interesting guy and, and I know he'll have a uh, perspective that will be uh, probably different to mine. Uh, and, and the people that I'm going to be speaking to, we're not going to agree on everything, I'm quite sure. And, and In fact, I, I don't want that. I would rather be challenged about this stuff. I don't want people just, um, you know, preach. I don't want this to turn into like a uh, echo chamber of of nonsense, really. So, so yeah, so I'm going to be wheeling on some, some really interesting people who've got a story to tell. Some of it will be about uh, their challenges in the job. And others will just talk about how things, how things used to be. Uh, and, and some of it will be, I'm sure, very amusing, no doubt. So um, I'm going to also introduce my wife at some point uh, during this episode. Uh, she's a little bit shy, so just uh, be nice to her when she comes on. Okay, so um, so what exactly have people been saying uh, who've been contacting me? Well, I think it broadly falls into two categories, the comments. The first sort of um, pot of comments tend to be uh, from police officers, uh, past and present, who have been saying, thank God someone's saying this as it is. Um, so that's that's nice that they feel that I'm speaking for them, which is what I want to do, really. Uh, I think there's been so much frustration within the organisation for such a long time now, and they just don't feel that they're being listened to. No one's interested in what they're saying. So that's good. And the other um, point, which comes back quite a few times in a sort of a slightly sort of ch- angry, challenging sort of way, which I'm really comfortable with, because I was, you know, quite senior myself when I when I left. You got to remember that eighty percent of the police service nationally is is police constables. That's the sort of lowest rank in the hierarchy. So they they make up the the the, the vast majority of of the organisation. Uh, and then you've got sort of, um, if you imagine going up a pyramid, then you've got uh, a large number of sergeants who are probably another, I don't know, 10%. Um, and then inspectors probably, I don't know, 5%. So people like me who was, I finished off as a superintendent was is only a you know, very tiny number of people in the organisation. Uh, and there is a perception, you know, amongst the rank and file, I suppose, that, that superintendents and above are a bit out of touch. Uh, I, I like to think that that wasn't the case with me, but but I know what they mean when they say that. So quite a few of them sort of said to me, I totally agree with everything you're saying, Ian, 100%, but why didn't you say this when you were currently serving? And that's a really, really good question. And and, and I suppose the the answer to that is that you're in a disciplined service, you're, you're part of a large organisation, uh, and you can't just come out and say whatever you like. Um, no matter how strongly you, you feel about that. We're, we're, you know, when you're a police officer, you're a public servant and you have to be seen to be completely impartial and politically neutral. So to come out and do something like this while I was still serving would have been absolutely impossible. Um, so, so that's the answer to that, really. Uh, and it wasn't really another sort of point I'd make was it probably wasn't for me personally to say these things. Uh, that should have been people at the very top of the organisation who uh, should have been speaking for the entire organisation. So, so um, 
a review, given that I said that we would do a little bit of a review of the last week. So I suppose the thing that's really dominated the headlines uh, for some of this week were the uh, riots. Well, I'm not quite sure you'd call it a riot. You'd certainly call it a very serious outbreak of disorder in uh, Bristol on Sunday evening. So for those who aren't familiar with that incident, because you may be listening to this in another part of the world, um, or maybe you've been living in a cave uh, in this country for the last week, we had a, a very serious outbreak of disorder in Bristol on Sunday evening, and it was a uh, protest uh, against the uh, piece of legislation which is uh, going through Parliament in the UK at the moment, and it's, it's called the Police Crime Sentencing and Court Bill. And what that is, is a, a package of uh, legislative change that the government wants to bring through, which will address a whole load of things, really. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of it because a lot of it is, uh, is you know, it's a very kind of mixed package of, of measures designed to, you know, change uh, the criminal justice system and policing and, and hopefully make it a bit more representative of what, you know, the majority of people actually need and want. And one of those measures is to restrict the uh, rights to protest and give the police additional powers to deal with uh, protest. And when I say protest, I don't mean just all protest. That's not what it's about. This is about giving the police additional powers to deal with protest, which is causing significant disruption to the day-to-day -day lives of the majority of law-abiding people going about their lawful business. So if I just sort of talk a little bit about um, why I think um, this legislation has been proposed. So when I look back across the 30 years I was in the police, clearly there were incidents and uh, outbreaks of, of um, uh, disor disorder, rioting. You know, we had very serious riots across the whole of the UK in 2011, I believe it was which came on the back of a um, an incident in London when a, um, a chap was, was shot by the police and, as part of an ongoing sort of police operation. It, it just spiralled into um, very, very serious rioting, uh, which was just thuggery, really. It was nothing to do with uh, the original precursor um, catalyst incident. It was just a, an opportunity for uh, criminals and uh, yobs to go out and smash everything up. But obviously protest is a, is a well-established uh, democratic right uh, and I would certainly do everything in my power humanly possible to protect the right to protest, uh, both as a you know previous police officer as well as a, as a private citizen now. Um, but the reality is that in the last sort of, um, I wouldn't like to say how long, but certainly, you know, maybe the, let's say the last 10 years or so, the uh, right, the democratic right to peaceful protest has been somewhat um, subverted by a small number of um, very, very vociferous activist groups who uh, are small in number but massive in impact. And the tactics that they have started to use increasingly, and we saw this uh, in Bristol at the weekend, and we see it in Black Lives Matters uh, last year, and we see it in, in uh, the protests against you know, lawful um, business activities which have been 
sanctioned at a high level of government. So whether you agree with it or not, building roads or you know uh, HS2, whatever, whatever you think about that, the fact is that it's it's perfectly lawful and it's been it's been approved, um, you know, in the courts. But these activist groups uh, now organise and mobilise themselves very quickly using social media. They communicate uh, using end-to-end encrypted uh, technology, which is free uh, on you know things like WhatsApp or Telegram or whatever, and uh, and the tax- tactics they use are not about protesting peacefully. Uh, it's about causing as much disruption as possible to as many people as possible in a shorter period of time, and. The purpose of this bill is to say that is not acceptable, and if you do that, then that uh, you know the police will have additional powers to to stop it. So, so obviously these groups don't like that, and I would have to say to any of them who may be listening that you've caused this, you and your increasingly aggressive and disruptive and anti-democratic um, tactics, you have brought this upon yourselves. So. If you're angry about it, then look to yourselves, look to the people who run your organisations and ask, um, you know, could we have done things differently? Because it's a classic case of if you give somebody enough rope, eventually they hang themselves, don't they? And they've been given uh, many opportunities to sort themselves out, but it's come to the point now where they don't engage with the police, they don't engage with local authorities, they don't um, uh, do anything that will create the circumstances for a peaceful protest and, and, and quite the opposite. So anyway, that's the background to the bill. Um, the disorder in Bristol on Sunday evening was termed a kill the bill protest. So so one of the things, I've written a, a blog on this on my website, which you can have, go and have a look at. And what I thought was really reprehensible was Firstly, the fact that they actually called it Kill the Bill, because clearly was they were, you know, um, rather disingenuously suggesting that it was about stopping the legislative bill. The wording was clearly designed to encourage supporters to kill police officers, kill the old bill. So anyone, any of them who think that, you know, that we're, we're not stupid, you know, we clearly understand that that's what they were getting at. Um, and, and if a police officer had been killed in Bristol on Sunday evening, then they would have had that firmly on their conscience and they probably would have been arrested for incitement to murder, I would suggest, and quite rightly so. As it was, there was a lot of uh, damage caused to property in the area. A police station was trashed. Lots of police officers were quite badly injured. A police van was set on fire. They were actually trying to set fire to one of the police police vans while the police officers were inside it, um, which, in my view, is attempted murder. And and I would uh, hope that whoever was doing that will be charged with attempted murder in in the fullness of time. So one of the great ironies for me in uh, the way that these protesters behave is that they purport to be pushing back against authoritarianism and uh, abuses by the state. Whereas in actual fact, uh, what we see is a rabble of um, with people who are so kind of drunk on their ideology and a sense of moral superiority that they feel that they can bully and threaten 
both police officers and members of the public and businesses into bending to their will. And they don't see that actually this is the sort of extreme intolerance that resulted in people being herded up and locked away in Soviet gulags in the 1940s and 50s, uh, or for that matter, rounded up and, and herded into concentration camps and, and gas chambers in, in during the Second World War. It's exactly the same mentality where they so believe in their own ideology that they don't listen to anyone, they're not interested in what anyone else has to say. So what's it actually, I thought it'd be worth just talking a little bit about what's it actually like to be in the middle of one of these incidents uh, as a police officer? Because it's a, it's a type of policing unlike any other form of policing, I would suggest. And it's the one time in your career where uh, you, you sort of move into a much different way of being, much different approach to what's in front of you. Um, and I, I was a, a public order trained officer for um, many years, both as a PC and as a sergeant and as a inspector. Um, the, the term is is not riot training, um, it's public order training. So, so when you go to your public order training, which is generally, uh, I don't know, something once a year or something like that, you go for your refresher training. And there's different levels. There's um, uh, I'm a bit out of touch with all of that kind of stuff because basically I'm an investigator, detective, really. So it was never really the it was never really the the thing that I I sort of you know was my specialism, so to speak. But so anybody listening to this, if I'm getting this wrong, please tell me. Um, there's different levels. Um, levels one, two, and three. I think level two is is kind of the, the the one that I did, which was which was trained to go into riot situations in full kit as this sort of second wave, really. Generally speaking, the first wave, certainly in London when I was doing it, would be uh, the Territorial Support Group, the TSG. Uh, in West Midlands, they're referred to as the OSU, the Operations Support Unit. So they're the level ones. Uh, they're trained to a much higher level, and they'll generally be the, the first ones deployed into these situations. Um, and then the level twos will come in behind them to support them. The level threes will be officers who are sort of trained up to a, a lower level, but generally won't be sort of fully kitted up, so to speak, with the flame proofs and overalls and all that. And, I, and I've got to put a picture on my on my website. I think it's under the chapter called um, Inner City Violence of me wearing my flame proofs and all of that um, malarkey. So what's it actually like to be deployed into these situations? I think the first thing that's probably worth pointing out is that uh, the majority of the people that you see at these events, uh, the police officers in these events with their hel NATO helmets on and their flame proofs and, and whatnot, they are, in, in the main, they are the same police officers who will be patrolling your streets day and night, working in the community, responding to your uh, lost children, um, dog shit on the footpath, uh, or whatever it is that, that kind of you know, whatever reason you ring the police. Sorry, I'm being a bit um, glib there, I think. Um, but you know what I mean. They're, they're basically the, the the same officers you'll see driving around, walking about. Although you don't see many of them walking around these days, you know, because we haven't got enough of them. But So don't think that we've got this kind of massive army of 
public order trained riot police just sitting around twiddling their thumbs, uh, waiting to get called out because that's not the case. They are officers who will be probably are, will probably in the main have already done a day's uh, duty um, before being deployed into that situation. Uh, they could be uh, more likely they're going to be on rest days. They'll be called into work and told, "Get kitted up. You're going to Bristol or you're going to wherever." Okay. So, um, so I've been in those situations in a professional context a few times. Not not that many, to be fair, because you, you it's like a lot of things. You you, you do a lot of training, uh, but you don't tend to get deployed very often. Um, you get you you end up being um, you know stood put on standby, kitted up, and there's many many times when you know I, I was uh, with a with a serial. So let's just get get some of the language right for the non police officers. Um, yeah, so I. Police um, PSU is is the sort of standard operational unit of public order training trained officers. Okay, so a PSU is comprised of, and if I get this wrong, anyone out there, can you please just um, fire me a message and say, uh, Ian, you are we're talking out your arse and you got this wrong. So if I'm wrong, can you please just tell me? All right, so. A PSU is uh, one inspector, three sergeants and 18 constables uh, who are deployed in three vans. Yeah, So in each van you have one sergeant and six uh, fully kitted up uh, public order trained officers to level two or level one, depending on uh, you know where they're coming from. Uh, and you've got one inspector in charge of the the whole PSU. Okay, being deployed into these situations can be uh, quite exciting and scary at the same time. But it's all about the training. And if you've been well trained and you have a good um, serial on PSU, uh, good people around you, then it can make the whole experience uh, a whole lot better. And certainly the training is extremely realistic. Um, I, I was trained, as I say, as a level two officer for many years. You would uh, take part in simulated riots uh, involving police horses, dogs, petrol bombs being thrown at you, dozens of petrol bombs. You'd be taught how to deal with petrol bombs, uh, how to, um, you know, the fire extinguishers and various things. But they were genuine petrol bombs that you would literally have thrown at your feet and you'd have to walk through them, um, trying not to panic and flap. And uh, there's all sorts of tactics for different scenarios, for taking junctions, for holding junctions, for going into buildings, for um, taking ground, uh, as well as obviously the more offensive tactics about dealing with extremely violent people. So one of, the, one of my kind of observations when I watched the news about Bristol at the weekend was how many of the public order officers I saw, and again, I could be really, really getting this wrong, so if I am, please, please uh, forgive me. Um, it could be that they were standing, you know, maybe it was a funny camera angle or they were maybe standing, you know, on a drop curb or something like that, but an awful lot of the public order officers that I saw on television looked to be very small to me. I'm sorry to have to say that, but they did. Um they also look very young, and, and that's probably because I'm just really old. But and, and the one thing that really struck me was a lot of them looked absolutely petrified. And so if you've got very young people, some of whom are very small, 
and also very scared. That's not a brilliant combination in a in a in a riot situation. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's perfectly natural and normal to be scared. I think there'd be something wrong with you if you weren't. Uh, and it's all about controlling that fear and actually remembering your training and all of that kind of stuff. But there was something there for me about thinking. I'm not quite sure whether some of the people that we're putting into these situations now are quite cut out for it in terms of just their physical presence. And I know that sounds like, I sound like such a dinosaur saying that. I really do. I know I do. And I'm probably going to get people saying, you can't say that. Well, I'm sorry, I've just said it. Um, some some of those people looked very small to me. And, you know, I can't think when the the, the year that they abandoned the height restriction in policing. And I know there's all sorts of reasons for that. It was all part of the, uh, uh, again, I could be wrong here, but I think this was that was a human rights thing. You know, you can't help being small, can you? But there was a time, certainly when I joined, that um, male officers, I believe, had to be over five foot nine, was it? I think it was. And female officers had to be over a certain size. And there was also in the riot training, I'm calling it riot training, aren't I? Flipping idiot. The public order training. There were certain aspects of it that were physically extremely demanding and I know for a fact that they abandoned some of those uh, a few years ago because um, I think frankly people weren't able to do it anymore. Uh, I think that was part of the reason. It was seen as being unfair to certain individuals which to my mind is, is nonsensical. Um, so one of the things that they abandoned in the training was the shield run, what was called the shield run. So um, on the first day, you would have to do the shield run. And that was really hard. Uh, and if you didn't make it uh, in the in the allocated time, you, you wouldn't, you'd be failed off the course and, and that you wouldn't be allowed to be a public order officer. So what that involved was uh, running a route all around the training base, which is about, I've no idea, um, four, five, six hundred metres, something like that, maybe five, six hundred metres. And it was against the clock. I can't remember what time you had to do it in, but you had to do it pretty quickly. And you had to run holding the full shield, which are bloody heavy things and they're really awkward. And if it's a windy day, the wind would catch the bloody thing and blow you all over the place. I I, I was a bit of a racing snake in those days. I was I was very fit. And I used to really love the, the shield run. I thought it was great. And um, I used to absolutely blitz it. Um, and I used to um, do it quite quickly. But it is hard. It's physically hard. Um, so they did away with the shield run, I believe. And uh, because obviously some officers, when they abandoned the height restrictions, I think some of the officers probably struggled with that. So if I'm wrong here, please tell me, okay? So there's going to be, there might be, um, senior public order officers out there listening to this thinking, Ian, you're talking nonsense. Uh, we still do the shield run, but I don't think you do. And I saw some stuff on a website the other day, uh, a police Facebook site, bemoaning the fact that they don't do the shield run anymore because they can see that it weeded out people who just weren't physically up to doing that job. So the analogy for me would be, um, you know, would the army say to someone, um, don't worry, you don't have to jump over that, that wall. Um, and, and if that rucksack gets a bit too heavy, um, you, you can just put it down. 
uh, don't worry about it. Someone else will carry it for you, or you know what? Don't don't. You know the army wouldn't do that, would they? There's a standard there which you either pass or fail. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. Um, there's a standard there that if you can pass it and get through, then uh, you're you're kind of home and dry. Um, and 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 certainly some of the toughest uh, officers I ever uh, encountered in, in public order were were women. Um, uh, and there was one particular officer, and I really hope that she doesn't mind me um, giving her a shout out. In fact, I'm not going to I'm not going to give her surname because I think that would be that would be wrong to identify her in this song. But her first name was Tracy. Um, anybody from the Met back in the 1980s and 90s will know exactly who I'm talking about. And she was formidable. Uh, she was a public order training instructor, and she. I'm gonna sorry. I'm gonna swear now. She kicked the living shit out of everyone. Um, she was absolutely unbelievably strong. And um, and I remember we one of the exercises that we used to have to do was to go into a room uh, as a as a shield serial and take out someone who was um, armed and. Uh, extremely violent and, and these are very common situations that you deal with in policing uh, it happens all the time I did it as a uniform sergeant a uniform inspector um, and anyone who's been level two trained frequently gets called on on a typical day to go into an address and take out someone who's got a weapon or who is um, extremely agitated um, and, and is a danger to themselves or to other people so so we get trained how to do that and I remember going into the, um, we used to call it, sorry, this is not very politically correct, is it? We used to call it the nutter scenario uh, the, on, and used to go into the nutter room. And one day, uh, Tracy was the nutter. Uh, so she was all sort of padded up with elbow guards and leather gloves and helmet and knee pads and all of that stuff. And she absolutely beat the crap out of three of us. Um, so this isn't a, a gender argument I'm making. It's just a practical common sense observation that I think some people are cut out for public order training and some people are not. And and the people who are not cut out for it, either because of their size or they're maybe a bit overweight or whatever, um, then they probably need to be told, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, but uh, until, you know, you know, obviously you can't, you can't grow anymore, obviously. But, you know, if someone is very um, overweight, then they're not going to be able to keep up with the rest of the you know, the officers in a very violent situation. Anyway, I've, I've probably flogged that to death a little bit, but I just wanted to sort of explain how it all worked. So when you're actually in these situations, it can be quite um, terrifying sometimes. I think the worst one I dealt with was was actually when I was on duty on a... It was a Remembrance Day Sunday in London, and, and uh, we'd all been bussed into London to police the... Uh, Remembrance Day in the, in the Cenotaph and Whitehall uh, and around sort of horse guards and, and um, Westminster. And obviously that attracts many, many, many thousands of people. And the police are there. And it's a very, very lovely deployment, actually, because you get to speak to some lovely people, um, you know, the, the military veterans and their families. And so we went up to... Whitehall, and it was number one dress uniform because it was Remembrance Sunday, so that meant in those days it was uh, long sort of raincoats. Um, this is in the days when police officers would look pretty smart um, with nice shiny silver buttons and 
whistle chains and smartly ironed trousers, although that was not necessarily the case. Some of them were right scruffy buggers, but um, generally speaking, we were pretty smart in those days, I think. Um, because it was Remembrance Sunday, it was number one dress uniform, so it was white gloves. And, um, and yeah, it was really nice, um, you know, chatting to the families and the nice people, you know, which is always a, an absolute joy because most of, the, most of your day is taken up with dealing with people who aren't like that at all, you know. Um, we got redeployed. Uh, we heard it was all kicking off in the east end of London. Uh, there had been, there was a big uh, National Front march because obviously these idiots, they hijack the Union Jack, don't they? They, um, you know, they think they're more patriotic than anybody else and uh, they're just a bunch of knuckle-draggers, aren't they, really? Um, so the National Front were kicking off in the East End. They were being opposed by the left-wing, um, sort of anti-right-wing lot who, who, to be quite honest, are just as bad as them. They're all as bad as each other, uh, frankly. Um uh, uh, you know, if somebody said to me, would you rather deal with extreme right wing or extreme left wing? I'd say, I personally, I'd rather not deal with any of them because they're all a bunch of idiots. But we got bussed over to the east end of London. We didn't have any public order kit. Um, uh, we were put into this situation and uh, it was all going off at Haydock. Um, and we were getting bottled and bricked, uh, having street furniture thrown at us. And generally, it, it was bloody terrifying because we had no way of protecting ourselves. Um, you know, our supervisors were screaming for backup. Um, uh, we were getting attacked from both sides at this point. Uh, so we were properly caught. And we were basically trying to keep this lot apart. Um, and we were getting absolutely, um, I think the word is mullered. Eventually, a load of shield serials got uh, deployed against them, and we were we were drawn, uh, we were withdrawn from it. But it was an absolute uh, bloody nightmare because we we weren't we didn't have any protective equipment, and there was quite a few people injured that day. It was not very nice at all. So, just going back to the whole Bristol thing, um, clearly there's a massive investigation taking place by Avon and Somerset Police, and I wish them. Uh, all the best with that and hope it, hope it goes well and they can um, identify and lock up as many of these idiots as uh, as they can. Um, and again, just to help you understand what happens when these things are over, there is a massive investigation into these things where they uh, examine um, countless hours of CCTV footage, camera phone footage, footage from the media, and then they'll do... Uh, a whole load of arrests to hopefully as quickly as possible to get these people into custody. So yeah, they're looking for them at the moment. Um, so anyway, I'm going to move on to the book uh, now. So last podcast, I gave you just a bit of a basic introduction. Um, so the bit I am going to talk about, um, and this is kind of, you just got to indulge me here a little bit, because uh, it's one of the things that has really got on my nerves for a long time, is tele-police. The tele-police versus real police, okay? So, so many people, I think, and it drives me crackers as it, as it does to kind of uh, pretty much everybody else I've ever worked with. You know, when you go to a dinner party or you go to the pub and you meet someone who, who you don't know and and they find out you're a police officer and they ask you all the same questions... And, um, and and so many of the questions and so many of their opinions 
seem to be formed on the basis of what they've read or seen um, on television. Uh, they don't read anything on television. That's stupid, isn't it? Come on in. Seen on television. And uh, so, yes, there's certain things that you see t again and again on television about the police, which is just nonsense. So I'm going to I'm going to talk through a few of those, um, the ones that kind of annoy me the most. And, and it, it's poor Mrs. Donnelly. I do feel sorry for her, bless her. Um, I'm going to wheel her on and she'll introduce herself uh, in a bit. Um, but uh, it makes watching these things in our house very stressful for her, bless her, because I end up getting... Um, a bit agitated. Um, at the at very least, I roll my eyes a lot. Um, at worst, I end up shouting at the television. Um, so so yeah. So anyway, here we go. So one of the first ones is you see this a, a lot on on police dramas. Uniform officers standing at attention, usually either inside or outside an interview room where a suspect has been interviewed. Okay. I've no where the where do they get that from? I've no idea. Um, I have never seen a uniformed police officer stood at attention like a like a spare prick at a wedding, either inside or outside an interview room. It's like, why would you do that? So an, another point of that is that if if, if nobody had, had noticed, we don't we don't even have enough police officers now to to go and investigate your burglary. Never mind to stand around um, outside an interview room um, for no reason. Okay. Um, Another one, police officers wearing their hats inside police stations. Again, why would you do that? Um, police officers don't wear their hats inside the police station, okay? Um, in fact, to my slight irritation, I don't see that many police officers wearing their hats outside the police station, never mind inside the police station, uh, which is uh, annoying and, and says a, a lot about sort of standards dropping in my view. I'm sounding like a right old fart, but there you go. So it's not blue lights left flashing on a stationary police car. And, and that's even more annoying when it's parked on like a pea gravel drive of a wisteria clad house in the Cotswolds uh, dealing with another middle class pretend murder. OK, so uh, I'm not again, I've no idea where they get this idea from uh, that you, you park a police car, walk away from it and leave the lights flashing. Um, so basically, if you do that, the battery runs flat really quickly and uh, your, your, um, your, your colleagues will take the piss out of you, and quite rightly. Um, the only reason for having blue lights flashing in the car is to get through traffic, all right? So please, TV directors, can you just switch the blue lights off when they get to where they're going? Because it just looks stupid. Unless, of course, you just do it just to annoy me, which is fine, because, you know, that's fine. There's lots of other things that you do to annoy me, so you might as well just add that one to the list. Right, um... Senior officers in TV dramas pompously addressing junior officers as constable. Um, it doesn't happen. Senior officers generally refer to them as, um, you know, by their first names. Uh, the only people, the only exception to, to that is, um, you know, government ministers leaving um, Downing Street. They, they rather pompously refer to them as constable. Um, barristers in court for some reason. Um, now, I... I I sort of said, I did this just to warn my brother um, in the book because my brother is actually a criminal barrister. He was a he was a he was a police officer. Um, uh, you know, joined the Metropolitan Police like me and left and became a barrister. Um, but I I think that generally speaking, the barristers that, that as a as a as a as a collective, they're sort of psychologically and procedurally stuck somewhere between sort of eighteen fifty and nineteen eleven. But uh, yeah, so they call you constable, which is quite annoying, and also. 
uh, people like uh, we had out in Bristol the other night, and that, you know, but they usually put the emphasis on the first syllable of the word, if you get what I mean. Right, another thing that gets on my nerves is um, senior officers interviewing suspects in custody, okay? So very often in these dramas, you'll get someone like as a superintendent or chief superintendent interviewing the suspect. It doesn't happen. Um, 90% of probably more, probably 99% of interviews of, of uh, suspects in custody are done by a detective constable or a detective sergeant. In other words, someone who knows what they're doing. Let me see, what are the other ones uh, that are... Um, quite annoying oh yeah um suspects in interviews crumbling and telling the police officers everything they've done uh i don't think i've ever seen it in my entire career uh i'd say 90 95 percent of interviews in police custody uh generate uh, no comment to every single question uh, put to them which can be very frustrating, and, and that's their legal right to do that, um, and, and they will do that on, on their solicitor's advice. The solicitor will speak to them in the interview room before the start of the interview, and they will basically tell them uh, to answer no comment to every question. Um, and sometimes, sometimes um, you know, they'll even answer no comment when you say to them, uh, can you just state, for the purposes of the tape, can you please state, state your name? And they'll go, no, <laughs> no comment. And the solicitor will say, no, 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 you, you can't answer that question. Um, oh, cheers, thanks for that. So um, so there we go. Um, here we go, another one. Um, surveillance officers sticking out like sore thumbs and making it really obvious to everyone in a 200-yard radius that they're a surveillance officer. So you see them sitting in cars with the ridiculous kind of dangly earpieces or talking into handheld radios or using binoculars or using a camera with a big long lens and they're about like 30 yards away from the suspect. Um, in reality, and having been on the surveillance team myself, in reality, it would be extremely difficult to spot a good surveillance team. So, um, yeah, they don't do that. Yeah, and, and sort of linked to that one is um, characters in police dramas um, following a suspect in a car on their own, driving about 30 yards behind them. Um, and following them for miles and miles and gaining eventually the crucial piece of evidence that they need. So from a surveillance point of view, it's almost impossible to follow someone uh, driving a car unless you've got a full surveillance team because um, basically you get stuck at the first set of traffic lights. Um, so that doesn't happen. Yeah, another one, corrupt officers everywhere you look. So this is probably uh, pointed, sort of directed at a line of duty really because... Oh dear, where do you start with line of duty? It's just rubbish. I know I know you probably really like it out there and you think it's great, but it's just rubbish. And so I'm sorry to have to disillusion you, but corrupt officers absolutely everywhere. Pretty much everyone's corrupt in line of duty. And and again, um in reality that's just not the case. I know that I know it's I know it's only telly, I know, but it's not the case. And the reason I think it's important to make this point is that I don't want people to think that there's corrupt officers everywhere in the police. They just really, really aren't. Um, Anti-corruption units weed them out very quickly. Clearly, we do get officers who go bent. Um, you know, I, I think that, that you know there's plenty of evidence of that. But they are a tiny, 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 tiny minority, and and they generally get caught um, fairly quickly. So. 
let me see. Um, oh yeah, another one that's slightly annoying. Um, the patholo- people like people like pathologists, coroners, and prosecuting lawyers getting involved in the criminal investigation. So you think about things like BBC Silent Witness or um, Joe oh God Judge John Deed, for example. Um, they don't. Okay. Uh, they've got their job to do and they've got quite enough to do probably cutting up dead bodies and finding out what killed them or um, you know preparing their case for court or whatever they don't get involved in the police investigation in any way okay yeah another one that I always find amusing and amusing slash annoying is uh, crime scene investigators examining and photographing a crime scene um, wearing their white forensic suits uh, paper boots and uh, face masks. And then the senior detective uh, tromps into the crime scene wearing a suit and tie uh, with probably dog shit all over his shoes, um, wiping dog shit on the carpet and picking stuff up. Okay, doesn't happen. So crime scene managers, extremely highly trained, extremely good at what they do. Um, no one is allowed into that crime scene uh, without their permission. Uh, and generally speaking, there's no reason for anyone else to go into the crime scene. The, the, what will what what will what will happen is um, certainly when I was an SIO, and it's exactly the same now. As soon as the crime scene has been um, uh, discovered, say for example, you've got a murder and you've got blood all over the place, and you've got a, pl- a police officer has gone in there, um, identified uh, what's gone on, um, they will retreat, lock it all down. They'll have their shoes and their clothes probably seized and bagged up um, for um, for evidence. No one will go in there at all until the, the the crime scene examiner gets there, and they will there will be a, a route uh, identified into the crime scene uh, through a cordon, which will be a sterile cordon depending on how big the crime scene is. And um, so yeah, you don't get the um, sweaty. Um, detective with um, egg yolk down his tie and having a fag or whatever um, walking in there and starting to pick stuff up. It just doesn't happen. Okay. And lastly, and this is one of my favourites, I've got to say, is cops shout, shouting, um, Oi, you! when they're about 50 yards away from the person that they're looking for, which obviously does a number of things. It, it alerts the person who then, funnily enough, starts running away, so it gives them a head start. And then um, it results in a completely unnecessary foot chase by car uh, or by car or jumping over hedges and fences um, between railway carriages and God knows what else, okay? So, uh, again, if you're out and about um, either in uniform or plain clothes and you see one, see someone who you want to speak to um, because you know they might be wanted for an offence, uh, or they, you know, they're wanted um, on, say, a recall to prison or something like that. What you do is you very, very quietly and unobtrusively get as close to them as you possibly can. And if you can, you take them firmly by the arm and you arrest them to stop them running away. You don't shout at them and give them a head start. Okay, so um, as I promised, I am going to introduce you to my wife, Kay, the smog monkey. Um, so, 
So darling, would you like to just introduce yourself briefly? I would probably not introduce myself as a smog monkey, if you don't mind. I can't okay. believe you said that. Okay, so <laughs> so um, just a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, um, so obviously I've got Ian's background, um, but I'm what, personal or...? Um, whatever you want. Whatever I want. Well, I've, um, I'm currently not working, which is brilliant. Um, I've just um, taken voluntary redundancy from, from IBM, where I've been for 26 years. Had a great career there, but uh, decided that it was time, about time I did something. It takes me a while to get into change things, but uh, fancy doing something a little bit different. So, um, so yeah, currently at home, sorting out the loft, still in lockdown, kids back at school. She was getting really grumpy yesterday because she'd been up in the loft for how many days? Was it four days? Yeah. And uh, day one was like, oh, God, this is going to be amazing. I'll get rid of all this crap. Day two was like, oh, God, this loft's really, I'm really bored. Day four, I think you were just about to throw yourself out of the yeah. loft, weren't you? Yeah. I've got nowhere to put the stuff either, which I want to get rid of, which is... Uh, so anyway, um, smog monkey. So just explain, <laughs> just explain, so just explain what a smog monkey is, darling. So, um, so I was called a smog monkey, and it was actually a term of affection from... Um, a guy, Paul, Geordie Paul, who I used to share a house with. Um, so um, people from the northeast, and the northeast is a big area, but um, people from Teesside are sometimes called smoggies. Um, I think it's from the football club. I think uh, uh, people visiting um, Middlesbrough, the borough, they call the, the football sporters smoggies because but, of all the industry in the chimneys, ICI and, and the like. I'm not actually from Middlesbrough, but anyway. Um, and... Monkey is is a, is a reference to monkey hanger, um, which people call anybody who lives in Hartlepool monkey hangers, um, which goes back to a folklore back in Napoleonic times, um, where a sh uh, there was a shipwreck off Hartlepool, and the people of Hartlepool um, had never seen a Frenchman before or a monkey. So they thought they'd been invaded, didn't they? They thought they'd been invaded, and they th and they put this monkey on trial, which got washed up on the beach, and apparently in military uniform, the tale goes. Um, and they held a trial, and because it couldn't speak, and um, they thought it was a, um, a French spy, so they hung it on the beach. So they're called monkey hangers, aren't monkey they? Monkey hangers. So um, a combination of both. I'm not from Hartlepool either, but there we go. Um, I'm called Smog Monkey. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there you go. Thanks. It's all right. My pleasure. Um, and so just briefly, just for a couple of minutes um, before we finish the podcast, I think it's probably not a bad moment just to sort of ask you about being married to a police officer. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, it goes like saying here that obviously you are blessed beyond words to be married to me. Ob obviously. <laughs> Every day I think how lucky I am. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's. I um, mean, uh, I like to say to Kay that um, you know when she pulled the handle of the slot machine of life, um, <laughs> all those three triple bars came up all in a row. Oh, yeah, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's it like? I'll shut up. It's, uh, what's it, what's it like being married to a police officer? Um, so you have you you did actually leave the police? Do you remind me? I know. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> so okay, but, I'm not a police officer anymore. But yeah, I but, was. But that's I think, I think that's part. That's an interesting point actually because I think although obviously you've handed in your warrant card and your your badge, you know I think 
once you've done 30 years or amount of time in any service, you know, it, it's hard just to walk away from that. I think you've probably got that kind of police officer. There's so many things that you do today, which, you know, it's you've been trained in a certain way. Like my driving, which you like, like very much. Like, too. I was just going to mention your driving <laughs> because you still drive. And it's the one thing which gets in my wick is you still drive like you're on surveillance. No no lane etiquette, no signalling, even when you're taking the kids to school. In my car, which I'm not happy about because people think I'm a bit of a bad driving. But, um, no, I mean, I think um, when, you know, when you're in the police and um, all the different roles that you, you did, I mean, I think for me, one thing that we needed to be was... Um, was organised, and I'm using the we term because you're not and I am mostly, but but sometimes some of the jobs that you did, um, just thinking when you're in the CT and the counter-terrorism unit, you know, you, you would be going out to work on a, possibly a shift, just depending on what was kind of cracking off, and, and I wasn't never sure when you'd be coming back, because obviously criminals don't work nine till five. Well, I, well, I told you I was going to, to, to work, didn't I? <laughs> Apparently. Actually, it was my fancy one. <laughs> Good luck to her. Um, but but I think, it, and because of that, the implications for us, and at the time we had a young, I was pregnant, um, and we had a, 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 a baby, um, is you, ha you have to be super organised. Things like, you know, getting the dog walk, you know, getting the dog to doggy daycare, getting the kids to... Um, nursery and then me into work or your older kids back to school it, yeah so i mean there's one time wasn't there when i was in the counter-terrorism unit where it was a very very busy period wasn't it and i was probably at work sort of 16 hours a day probably for weeks and weeks at a time sometimes uh you know and occasionally you'd even sleep on the floor you know yeah anyway sorry i'll shut up this is about you not me isn't it um so yeah go on no but that thing is important because you know you you're not sure quite when or if you make plans they may not always you know, you may not always be available to come there, and that's just the nature of the job. And what is a you know married to a to a copper, you kind of just accept there's there's a there's a there's a world out there which you know you're keeping us safe at the end of the day, and um, you've got to do your job. So, but you used uh, to get a bit freaked out by some of the conversations. I oh have, God, I? yeah. I mean, I think that's that's another thing is is that I think what your normal is. And the way you talk to you, I mean, just thinking of some of the, the most horrific things which you've had to deal with and, and your, you know, your, your mates and stuff as well, is is sometimes um, it, it, you need a certain type of humour just to get through that, you know, you know, dealing with babies, dead, dead babies and children and oh, just some, some, some really depressing and sad, sad stuff. Um, but I think it gives you a certain kind of, um, so it changes your character, and I think you know you you've got to get through that. You, if every, every police officer is a human being, you know you're not born a police officer. Are you? You've got to deal with some of that stuff, and I think sometimes some things that you find funny, not everybody else would. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is a bit of a dark sense of humour there, isn't there? But I mean, I used to have to be quite careful, didn't I? If I was on the phone when I was a DI in the child protection unit. So, yeah, and that's so when, I, when I first met you. I remember. Mm. I remember we were taking into a Chinese on a. I don't know it was after you first joined, after we first got together. But you you would take a call. We're just about to, you know, have you? I was about to have a glass of wine and a Chinese, and um, your phone would ring, and and then you'd just start this line of questioning which it was like, I don't think I need to have this stuff in my head mm. about what the circumstances of a child 
death and you know you were obviously just very um methodically going through elimination so and then literally you'd you'd, you'd say sorry love, i've got to go and you'd, you'd you'd go off into the night to the other side of birmingham and you know obviously deal with you know a horrendous situation a grieving family and then literally come back in the early hours and as he climb back into bed and you know, as if nothing happened. Yeah, just <laughs> in your dreams. <laughs> You're outrageous. Uh, no, I didn't do that because <laughs> I was probably a bit tired, tired and emotional. Right. Okay. Well, listen. Uh, thank you, darling. That was very helpful. And um, so, what I'm going to be doing as it goes on is I'm going to be wheeling Kay on from time to time. Um, she hasn't actually got wheels, by the way. She's got, she's got, <laughs> casters. She got legs. Um, so I'm going to bring her on from time to time, just talk about various things, just to get a different perspective. Because, you know, we don't necessarily agree on everything. And, uh, you know, I think I hinted in the last uh, first episode that, you know, there's aspects to this podcast and this website that we're not uh, in complete agreement on, you know, particularly specifically around the, the risks that that poses, you know, to me. Uh, in some respects, um, you know, in terms of getting some adverse publicity and, you know, in some of the reviews, you think about, um, you know, some of the nasty people I've dealt with over the years and all of that kind of stuff. And so there you go. Anyway, thanks very much for that, darling. My pleasure. So there you go. Um, my lovely wife, the smog monkey, you've met her now and uh, get her back at some point and we'll have a chat. Okay, folks, um, that's it for this week. Um, thanks ever so much. Uh, don't forget, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That'll be really great. See you next week. Bye.